Ladies and gents, this is the moment you've been waiting for, a podcast for podcasters. This is Creating the Greatest Show, and I'm your host, Casey Cheshire. Join me as we interview podcast hosts and investigate the ingredients of a successful interview podcast. We'll talk mistakes, earned skills, powerful questions, and more. This show is sponsored by Ringmaster, completely done for you, B2B podcast production. I hit the button. I cannot escape, and I, nor do I want to, but it's time to get this show on the road. It's time to introduce you to my guest. I can't wait to have this conversation and also to share it with all of you. Man, who she is an absolute powerhouse. We're going to talk story. We're going to talk about what it takes to have something you want to listen to, to as a host and as a guest, as an audience member. I, and my guest today, she is a storyteller and she actually helps other people uncover stories to help demonstrate character and values and vision. Vision, And it's just like unlocking the power of stories. So who is she? Storyteller, strength finder coach, love strength finder, professional speaker and keynote speaker, author and podcast host. Her book and her podcast similarly named your stories don't define you how you tell them will. That's a book that needs to be bought right now. Host of Your Stories Don't Define You with over 270 episodes, keynote speaker, storytelling coach at Elkins Consulting, Sarah Elkins. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Casey. It's so good to be here. Man, there's a lot of things. I almost lost myself in your introduction. Like there is just, <laughs> you're, you're busy. I get bored really easily. <laughs> we can we can talk about how that shows up in my strengths finder results, but just so you know, I get bored really easily. So I fill my days with a lot of different things and um I just I am kind of hyperactive. So it suits me. Well, it suits you and it suits me because I get to interview you and uh I won't be getting bored here. So hopefully I'll keep you from getting bored. So right to that first question. Sarah, pull back the curtain for us on your show and share your most important strategy for a great interview podcast. Well, I've been thinking about this and there are two parts to it. The first is being a really good listener. Uh, I started out not being great at listening to my guests and I feel like it's changed everything about how I listen, not just on my podcast, but even with my family, with my coaching clients. Being a good listener is a, a huge strategy to interviewing anyone, whether you're interviewing somebody for a job or in media. And the second part of that is being flexible, because if you're really listening well, you can hear little pieces to an answer that a guest is giving you and be able to dive a little deeper if you're not totally beholden to a script of questions. Got it. Be flexible if you can, if you've designed it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, all right, let's start with the listening. You mentioned, you know, at the start, maybe you weren't so great at it. What does it really take to be a good listener? And I'm literally going to actively apply everything you, you say into <laughs> listening to you right now. I, I love that. Really, when you think about listening, when when you've heard the phrase active listening, active listening doesn't mean just listening to what the person is saying. It's also listening for what the person isn't saying. It's watching for body language if you have video on or if you're in person. 
And even more importantly to me, it's making sure you're paying attention to their answer rather than thinking about what you want to say next. And just it's such a natural and human thing when you hear somebody share a story to have a memory or an idea pop up into your head that then you want to share your story that's related to it. And that's totally normal, totally natural. It's the whole reason I started my podcast and my book. The reason I wrote my book is because that works. If I want to uncover the story of a guest, I will share a brief story of my own. The key to listening, though, is knowing that when you're sharing that story, the intention is to unlock the story of the person in front of you, to uncover that. And then really listening to what their answer is. Share your story only with the intention of unlocking theirs. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to unlock their story? Well, I'll give you an example. With one of my coaching clients recently, I asked her to tell me about a time when a particular strength showed up. I said, Tell me about when command showed up in a really good way, as opposed to in a bossy way that didn't, <laughs> didn't set up a, a relationship very well. And she couldn't really think of one. Like she, she had so many criticisms in her head about that particular talent, about when she came across as bossy, that she couldn't think of a time when it came out in a good way. So I shared a story about... Um, when my mother's second husband died and I showed up a couple days afterward and she had had family nearby and people were at the house, but it was when I walked in that she collapsed into my arms and said, thank goodness you're here. Now I know everything will be okay. And that's because my Um, command shows up. When it's important, my command shows up and I make sense out of chaos. I make sure people are taken care of and hosted I make sure that things are getting done and the kitchen is straightened enough so that we can find what we need. I just take over when I notice that there's a need for that. So when I told her that story, she suddenly had a memory of a similar situation where something like that Mm -hmm. happened. So that's what I mean by unlocking it. What is it that you were fixing? Like, or what, what keeps things locked? What was the thing that was preventing her from hearing that story, for her well, own story? One of the things that I heard early on when I first started in this area of story sharing, storytelling to help people demonstrate their, their character, values, and vision was at a workshop and a woman said, oh, I don't have any stories. It kind of broke my heart. But I could see why she said that. And the real reason she said that was she didn't think that the moments in her life were worthy to call a story. So then do you, do you have like a loose working definition of what a story is? Well, I know what it isn't. <laughs> yes. Well, One of the things that bothered me really early on was when people would say things like, stop telling yourself the story that you're not good enough. Stop telling yourself the story that ABC. That's not a story. That's a label. So if I tell myself I'm not an athlete, 
that's not a story. I'm, I'm labeling myself, positive or negative. A story is, it can be one of the origin experiences you had that gave you that label. So for instance, if I say I am not an athlete, I can tell you immediately part of that was growing up very small physically in stature. And I would go out to play basketball. And of course, it was really tricky for me to get the ball up into that basket from early on. Um, tell me but about I, it. Yeah. I could do it. I, I could do it. I just wasn't as good at it as other people. And I never found it particularly satisfying to be on a team playing a sport. And because of that, I told myself I wasn't an athlete. Mm. And you gave yourself that label because yes. of the earlier stories. Exactly. So I could tell you a specific story about um, not being chosen on the kickball team. I remember yes. vividly being in PE and um, being in the gym with this group of other third and fourth graders and not being picked on the team because I was little and they underestimated my speed. They underestimated my agility. And I just, I can look back and say that's why they didn't pick me. But at the time, it just felt like a popularity contest. And it felt like it was because I wasn't a good, I wasn't very good at sports. So I, I have vivid memories of those moments. And I can tell you very specific stories that contributed to that label. Yeah, I mean, what would you call what would you call a, a story? I mean, it seems like it's something we all know inherently what a, a story is. But having been someone who sort of specializes in it, what would you what would you is there like a simple definition of it? Well, you can go with the whole hero's journey. Um, okay. Or you can just say a story has a setup where you describe where you are and the people around you. And then it has the part that describes what was wrong or the problem you were trying to solve. And you describe the people that are involved in your in the situation, the problem you're trying to solve. And then there's the solution. So every story really needs to have three parts. They may look different each time, but every story really needs those three parts. So as an example, I have um, a job interview storytelling course online through Kajabi. So that's my oh, online cool. course that's now available. And the way that I describe it is this. Um, when I was hired to be the public affairs officer for a little city here in Montana, I remember the first thing that I did was identify different interactions that the community had with our city that were complicated but shouldn't be. And I remember looking up a lot of different options in terms of software and technology to use to fix that problem. And when I finally came across one that was simple, elegant, and wasn't very expensive, it's called Seamless Docs, I got my leadership to get involved with it. They agreed to try it out for a year. And within a few days of signing the contract, I had collected a group of advocates within the city, um, administrative people from across the city. And we had, I don't know, four or five of these forms online live within four days of that contract being signed. And it changed the way our community did business with our city. It was amazing. 
And it was because I was able to get the right people on board, the right forms that would be simple and elegant to go live with right away. And, yeah. uh, and I got a call from a resident within a couple of hours of the first form being online, complimenting us and thanking us. Oh, wow. Well, that is a story. That is a story. And I could go into more detail, um, but it can, it can take just three minutes and you can end up with a really good story in three or four minutes. And that story alone demonstrates so much about me as an employee and as a person. It demonstrates how much I care about my community. It demonstrates um, how I approach a problem. There are all kinds of other character and skills that you know about me as a result of a three-minute story. Right. And it can be powerful to tell that. And I, and I can understand why you would work with people to help uncover their stories because I've heard a lot of bad stories. I've heard a lot of misformed ones, especially from podcast hosts, even on shows I've hosted, where the guest, untrained and unprepared, will ramble on or take you back 19 years ago. We literally tell people this on the prep call, like, don't start your story by telling me 19 years ago you discovered radio, you know, and that led into podcasting for you. Like, we want to get, and so we try to, help them form it but i can i can see that this skill is way more important than i maybe gave it credit which is helping draw the story out of your podcast guest is critical for keeping your audience sane and also keeping you as a host checked in right for that active listening it's way more easy to active listen to a great story like the one you just told than it is to hear this rambly mess and you're not sure where it's going exactly yeah Absolutely. It's, it's kind of amazing to me. Um, that's, that's part of why I wrote the book is because when I first started my podcast, my guests really didn't know what story to share or how to share it. So it, sometimes it felt like I was pulling teeth trying to get what I wanted out of my guest. And now I've gotten so good at it, partly because I've gotten to be a better listener um, and partly because I prepare my guests a little bit better through the email that I send to welcome them. But it's, um, it is, it's a skill that a lot of people don't realize is critical to being able to inspire an audience, motivate them, persuade them in some way. Yeah. So you, I know you have a whole service doing this, but if you were to boil down into maybe something that happens on a prep call, like the one we did, are there maybe a couple key tips you want to do to prepare your guests to tell a story? How, how would you, if you only had a few minutes with someone, prepare them to launch into a story? I don't think that's possible. I don't think you can okay. really, in just a few minutes, prepare them for that. Mm. I'm, I'm really good at pulling out the story and asking the salient question that gets us to the point. Um, and I'm pretty good at redirecting when I hear a story rambling or going in a direction that isn't going to be useful to our listeners or to the guest because you know a guest is on your podcast for a reason most of right. the time they're trying to promote something about their business or their new book or their own podcast or their services and um if i know they're not going to benefit from whatever we end up putting out there then i'm pretty good now about redirecting them 
I don't do a prep call. Our conversations yeah, okay. are very organic. Um, and what I do is in my email out to the guest, I tell them exactly what I'm looking for in terms of I'm looking for specific moments in your life where something changed in the way you see yourself and your role in, in your community at work with your family. So I tell them that, and then I send them links to two or three episodes that I think are really good examples of guests sharing stories that are inspiring or valuable or both. And that's one thing that I think is really, really important is listening to at least parts of a few different episodes of any podcast that you're going to be a guest on. So I always totally. say that, you know, some guests really find it useful to listen to a few episodes or parts of episodes. Some of them can get really long. And I, I don't want somebody listening to a 40 or 50 minute episode if they're not interested in it. But if you just right. listen to 10 minutes of it, you're going to get a feel for what kind of host I am. This is all this is all super fascinating to me. Now, they're not having to come up with a story on the fly. You're not they you're telling them how to uncover it or you're telling you're going to help uncover. But you're telling them what to think about first. They show up hopefully to your episode prepared. Do most of them prepare in advance? Do you have some percent that wing it? Because they can. <laughs> we definitely have some people that wing it. And I have to say <laughs> that in the majority of people that wing it do pretty well. Hmm. They're pretty flexible about it. But there are some that have this confidence that they know how to tell a story. And I am so puzzled by that confidence because their stories ramble or they, um, they in include way too many details or they try to cover yes. way too much time period. They think a story is a timeline of events when you can just pick out one incident within a time period to define that time period. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing how confident some people will come in and then all they do is talk about themselves. <laughs> and every story, I think the worst is when People talk about themselves without sharing the story to demonstrate what they're trying to demonstrate. So I've had, um, I've had guests tell me 14 times in a 10-minute conversation how much they want to help people, that that's their ultimate goal, that they love helping people. I love helping people. But they don't actually describe a time that they helped somebody. So they become the only character in their story. And if your whole purpose in life is to help people, but your stories don't involve other characters, you might be missing something. What do you think was going on there? Just as like a sidetrack. I, I think it's a combination of things. You could tell that yeah. I had two people in my head, couldn't you? <laughs> there were two oh, yeah, episodes that immediately yeah, popped into my head. Yeah. Yeah. With one of them, I think it's just... Um, kind of drinking his own Kool-Aid. You know, he he's starting to believe the hype that he seems mm. to have around him about who he is and his accomplishments. And yeah. yeah. And uh, honestly, if I start calling myself an expert, I'm in big trouble because I'm I truly believe that we always have more to learn 
And that if I'm calling myself an expert and having to tell people that I'm an expert, I'm probably not doing it right. Totally. And yeah, calling yourself expert, I, I wonder if that just murders the, uh, you know, the beginner mindset, the opportunity you might have to learn something. It just gets obliterated because you're supposed to already know it. And yes. So you just closed off learning more. Yeah. And you lose your sense of curiosity on whatever topic yeah. you think you're an expert on. Yeah. But Which the other thing. I also people not to. <laughs> go ahead. Right. No, you tell them not to what? Not to talk. Well, not to interview someone about something that you already know about as a host. Mm. Because then they're telling you something you already know. You don't actually want to hear the answer. You're not really curious. And kind of like the whole house of cards falls down. What were you saying? Um, I was thinking about the other person that came into my head when I was talking about people who don't yeah. tell a story very well, but they have this overwhelming confidence. And this other person, I think, was trying to convince himself that he had all of that, that he was all of those things. If you see it enough, hopefully it becomes true. Right. And I think sometimes people feel like they have to say things over and over again about themselves to make them true. Where to me, it's all about your actions. All right. So we, we, we know what not to do to talk about themselves. People can get in this situation and sort of take it back a little bit. You, if, if it's not really about the prep, right? They're thinking about it in advance. Is, is a lot of the magic then you're uncovering it during the interview? I'd like to think so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what yeah. makes my show different from other interview style podcasts is the questions that I ask and how I pick up on a very subtle cue and start pulling on that thread. Yeah. I mean, sometimes this is sort of just sort of natural and it's hard to describe it. But when you, when do you know it's a thread to pull on? Does anything ever indicate itself that you should pull on that loose sweater thread? Well, I, I, th I think I'm, I've just become kind of intuitive in that way because of all the, I, I have 270 something episodes yeah, out there. Just a few. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, <laughs> I'm very client oriented with my strengths finder coaching and my public speaking coaching that I do with people. So I think it's over time I've become far more in tune to the subtle things. Sometimes it's an expression on their face when they're sharing something and I realize there's right. more to it that they just kind of glossed over. I think in, in some ways, if you can connect the dots between something they said earlier in a conversation that you hear it come up again, you start kind of hearing a little bit of a pattern something repeat itself, a concept or a relationship or a character flaw. But if you're really listening, you can, you can pick those out. What do you do to the pressure to know what to say next? How do you resolve that? For my guests or for me? For you, right? So if you're really listening, like, like I've even found myself just listening so much to you right now. It's that uh, my brain is just sort of worrying, uh, like whirling and, <laughs> and like I can be like lost completely in the thoughts 
but part of me knows it and I'm responsible for continuing it to, get, to like don't lose yourself completely to the theoretical concepts going like you know stay in stay in the zone here and, and have that next question ready how how do you like to handle that well first of all thank you because that's a huge compliment as a guest if my host is deep in thought because of something i said that's a huge compliment i love yeah. that that's a wonderful feeling and most of the time, I'll actually just stop and say, I need to process that for a second. And I'll give, I'll give us, I don't know, four or five seconds of quiet. And then, then I might say, what else do you have that you want to share about that? So it just turns it back around. Or I might say, that reminds me of. Right. But I don't think there's anything wrong with a few seconds of quiet as long as people know why it's quiet. So I'll say, wow, my my brain is imploding right now. You just gave me something really important to consider. So I just need a second to collect myself and know what question to ask next. That's beautiful. I feel I feel like that's probably even like a sound bite that goes on LinkedIn because how often do we need just to hear that subtle permission, even socially, that you know, silence, silence can be more dramatic than the actual words, if, especially if a powerful story has just been related to you or powerful concepts, powerful notion to just pause for a second. But I, I did, I, I mean, I've done the pause for a second thing before. I've been okay with silence, but I love the twist on it saying all the better if your audience knows what's going on. I suppose if it's really dramatic, you just pause and everyone knows what's happening. Like that was a powerful story. But if it's this business concept, you're like, yeah, here this, here's this thing. I love, I love the humility and the, you know, busting the fourth wall to just say, yeah, wow. I guess my worry would be, wouldn't it sound like I don't know? Like you could use that as like, if you were paying attention, you might say the same thing, you know? So yep. do you, can do you, <laughs> Do you convey that you're not listening instead of convey that you're actually thinking about it? I, I've never had that problem. I think people know when you're sincere. They, they know when you're sincere. There are times where I've repeated back what I heard rather than saying, oh, wow, that was intense. I'll say, this is what I heard. And that's a great way to let your brain chew on something. Mm -hmm. Repeating it back. What about redirecting? You'd mentioned that earlier. The idea of maybe you're not, you're not, you're lost in your thoughts, but maybe your guest is and you want to bring them back in. Do you have a favorite way of doing that? Well, I, I do it differently depending on who is on the show and, and how they might take it. I've been very direct before because it's somebody that I know will trust me to take it in the right direction. And I'll say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Let's go back. I, I'm missing this part of the conversation. Or you said this earlier, and I'd, I'd like to get back to that. And I'll actually interrupt them mid-sentence <laughs> and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> you lost me here. Talk to me about interrupting people. And when, like, we were all taught, like, not to interrupt people, but 
as a host, sometimes it just feels right to do that when the story requires it or mm-hmm. the show requires it for some reason. Have you thought much about that? Uh, well, I, I think about it a lot afterward. I, I'm mm. sure you're similar in that after a conversation, I'll often have this long internal dialogue about either how great it was or how I could have done that a lot better. I hope I didn't insult this person. I wonder what they're thinking about ABC. You know, the whole internal dialogue, the hamster in my brain just running on that wheel until there's smoke coming out. So I do think a lot about interruptions and how to make them kind and how to make them useful as opposed to insulting in some way. I think, again, if... If you've been talking to somebody for a few minutes and you can quickly develop rapport with them, then they take that kind of guidance or correction in the in the kindness with which it was intended. So I haven't had a lot of problems with that. I definitely have gone in a direction a couple times with questions that the person is like, mm, no, I don't I don't want to go that direction. Oh, and and that's fine. Um, oftentimes, what I'll say is, let's hold back five seconds of quiet so that we can edit that part out, and we'll start in another direction. There's no problem with saying, "Whoa, I can hear you're getting a little uncomfortable with this. Would you like to switch direction? We can cut that part out because I don't do any live podcasting." And that often will give them the confidence to go in a direction that makes them much more comfortable. And it makes for a much better conversation. You know, I sometimes like to operate as if there is no editing ability, but there for sure is. Uh, I actually lost my mind on a recent episode. Somebody mentioned, like, I love Twitter. Follow me on Twitter. So I literally started trying to follow them on Twitter in the middle of the show and then <laughs> didn't know what they were saying. And they literally noticed it. That would be a good opportunity to say, whoa, um, it was just following you on Twitter, trying to multitask and I lost track of the conversation. Let's give five seconds of silence so that I know where to pick up and edit that out. I love that. You know what? It's interesting. It, it, it shatters that fourth wall, but no one knows it because you've edited it out. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think it harms the idea that you're having a two-way conversation, right? We're just having a conversation. Like you and I right now, it's like we're just talking to each other. But part of our, both of our brains go, and someone else gets to hear this too later on, right? But in the moment, it is literally just us talking. So I don't, I don't see you losing much by saying, by even me saying that. Like, but yeah, we both know that. It doesn't, doesn't hurt to say that or me saying, okay. I need to edit that out because I was an idiot. But like, don't edit that out. That's fine to leave that in there. <laughs> but yeah, I, it, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I think it's okay. I, I, I love the way you're taking care of your guest. Thank you. Yeah. I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but it's definitely a consciousness about their comfort level. And I, I would, <laughs> I said this during a keynote on storytelling recently. I was talking about storytelling and leadership. And I said, there are two misunderstandings about leadership storytelling. One is that 
your stories have to be epic, that you have to have the I almost died story or the my business almost went bankrupt story. Those are there's a time and a place for those stories. But if you're trying to encourage somebody or um, demonstrate your vision through what matters to you, those epic stories aren't going to have the same effect as a story about something that happened with your kid or a, a sibling. The other misunderstanding is that your stories have to be extremely vulnerable. And what I said during the keynote is, if you are being so extremely vulnerable that you are awkward and uncomfortable in a serious way, all you're going to succeed in doing is making everybody else uncomfortable around you. <laughs> and while there's right. a time and a place for making people uncomfortable, that's not really what you're going for when you're trying to guide people toward your vision or inspire people or um, invite them to be vulnerable, right? But if you're making everybody uncomfortable, they're not going to want to be vulnerable. Right, exactly. And all, all of these things I see as your either intentional or unintentional secret sauce for uncovering these stories that require a little bit of trust because you're building in just a a level of caring about your guests that, that I hadn't thought of before. At the same time, I literally heard you just say there is a time to make people uncomfortable. So I got to know what what is the time to make people uncomfortable? Well, I'll give you an example. My sister is really magical at this. She was talking to somebody who, who made a racist remark, like overtly racist. And yes. it was something like those people, one of that one of those kinds of comments, you know, those people. Like in conversation, not on a podcast, right? This is no, in conversation. Okay. And my sister said, I don't understand. What do you mean by that? Which made him very uncomfortable because he suddenly had to explain what he meant. He had to give actual language to it. Yeah. And it made him uncomfortable. And that's the only way people that are making comments like that are going to be aware that they made them in the first place, because most of the time they're oblivious to it. And second, understand that somebody's going to call them on it. So yeah, sometimes making people a little uncomfortable is the only way to get a wedge into the way that they're thinking. And I can see that happening on a podcast too. Not Hopefully, hopefully not your exact example, but the idea of someone saying something only by challenging it in a kind and respectful way. Might you fully understand where they're coming from, what they're saying. Mm -hmm. yeah, and not, I've definitely done that. Not interviewing racists, but like interviewing someone who likes one style of marketing over another and you don't quite understand it. You have to sort of challenge it. Well, I had a great conversation where um, we traded guest spots on each other's podcasts. It's the Mosaic Life podcast. And um, this guy is wonderfully warm and kind, Trey Kaufman, just super kind. And he was saying things about food and how he, all he thinks about food is as fuel. Oh, geez. And yes, and I love to cook for people. It's one of my love languages for sure. I can't even tell you how many hundreds or probably well over a thousand guests we fed at our dining room table over the last 20 something years that I've been married to my husband. 
And also, I remember that in my household growing up, my mom and dad always fed people. And I had to challenge him on what he was saying because I said, I understand that for you, it probably has something to do with childhood trauma, that food and, you know, having to finish what's on your plate, even if you don't like it mm. or even if you're full or whatever came along with your mealtimes, which many people don't have wonderful memories of mealtime with their families, whatever, wherever it came from, there is another perspective here. Because when we have Thanksgiving, we don't fill the table with food. That's not how we celebrate our Thanksgiving, our gratitude. We have a few delicious dishes on the table. We don't fill ourselves until we're explosively full. You know, the, the whole point of it for us is to put good, nourishing, healthful food into our bodies and to sit around the table together and have this, have deep conversations and laugh and have joy and sorrow and grief all at our dining room table. And I did have to challenge him and interrupt him and make him a little uncomfortable. And he came, he was making me a little uncomfortable, which is unusual. And Interesting. I think both of those episodes, the one where I was a guest on his and he was a guest on mine, both of those challenged both of us in some of the most beautiful ways. I love this man. I get his newsletter. He's so thoughtful. And I'm not sure that we would have developed that kind of relationship if we were so hesitant to make each other uncomfortable. Right. What, what was his response did, when you challenged him on that? Did he sort of like think about the times when food wasn't just fuel? I don't, I don't know. Um, I can tell you that he acknowledged that there is a different perspective out there that he doesn't need to hammer home for other people that food doesn't matter, that food is fuel. You know, because it's really tempting when you get onto this idea of something that's really helping you process information and deal with your trauma. It's hard not to try to influence others in that way. Like um, you, if you talk to somebody who has who has become vegan or vegetarian after not being that way. Sometimes they get really pushy toward other people about being mm -hmm. that way. Right. And the same sure. with um, alcoholics when they are in recovery, sometimes they have a hard time seeing somebody who can drink without addiction and, and not judge. So I get right. that. And I, I think that that was more the aha moment for him was I, I need to be conscious that for some people, this is not this is not something that will resonate with them. But you'd have to ask him. <laughs> I don't know. I have to put him on the spot. We're, we're dialing his phone number right now. No, it's different. Kind we of totally could. Uh, <laughs> we totally could. He's that kind of guy. I love him. Well, since we recently talked about redirecting i would like to demonstrate that by redirecting uh to the second of the two parts we talked about active listening and i feel we've really dived into that and then the second part was around the being flexible and adjusting and 
Could you talk more about that and, and really how, how you approach your mindset is to be able to do that? Yes. What I've noticed as a guest is that sometimes people are really rigid about the questions they're going to ask. And it feels like sometimes they miss out on opportunities to dive deeper into a concept that would be good for their listeners. So for instance, um, I was on one of those podcasts where they had a set of five questions and they were going to ask those five questions. And even though the answer to one of them didn't easily lead into the next question, they just stopped that flow of conversation to ask me the next question. And I get it. Some people, especially as a StrengthsFinder coach, I understand that that kind of flexibility isn't for everyone. And um, they have a successful podcast, so they must be doing something right. There are listeners that that appeals to them, that predictability of those questions. If you are not that kind of person, if you really want to have flexibility, I think the key is to consider your episodes as conversational, not as a media interview that you would see on a TV show or you know, standard questions for an interview. And I think what we miss out on when we're rigid is the opportunity to dive a little deeper into something that catches our attention. So as, um, as a podcast host, there's the other side of it. I've had guests right. that really want to say something. They have something prepared. So even if I don't ask that question, they'll use that prepared answer. And it has nothing to do with the question I asked or the conversational tone that we've developed. Because they aren't, they aren't listening. So being a guest, it's just as important to listen. Did that answer your question? <laughs> it did. It did. Okay. Uh, being so focused on future questions can just, I love that you highlighted the flow of it. And I, I know I've had an experience where I love asking this question about, you know, what advice would you, you would give your, your younger self on the marketing podcast? I always like, ah, it's fun. I enjoy that one. But because I let people know about it on the prep, Sometimes, and maybe it's happened like four times out of God knows how many, but be, the, the guests inadvertently just started talking about, you know, and this is the advice I would give myself. It'd be X, Y, and Z. <laughs> and I'm always like, okay, well, that question has been asked now. I don't go and ask it later. You know, or like cut the guests short because what we're talking about is way more important, you know? And we're going down a unique place versus a rote place. Again, my preference for a show, based on my all my strength finders and all the things, but still my preference for it. And so I, I've grown comfortable putting more weight on a on the flexible part than the the rigid question part. Yeah. Do you have some like go-to questions you ask as well? I mean, how much, how much do you prepare an event? It, how much is scripted versus how much is different every time? Really depends on the guest. I notice right away which guests need more structure and which ones won't need as much structure. 
I don't know if it's because I'm a StrengthsFinder coach or because I just am intuitive that way. I can read their website. I can see the kind of content that they're sharing and, and get a better idea of what kind of guest they are. Um, there are some guests that want all the information right up front. They, they want to collect all the information so that they feel prepared and confident. They need to think about things more than I need to think about things in order to participate. They, um, and so with somebody like that, I might be more specific about what I'm looking for in their stories. It still becomes conversational, but I prepare them yeah. a little bit more. So the standard question, I always start with a question at the beginning of every episode where I ask the guests to share something about themselves that most people don't know. Mm. And I do give them a heads up in my email prep or my preparation email that I send to them so that they're ready for it. I do tell them that I'm going to ask them that question. And, and I explain this usually during the episode when I say I'm asking this question because it puts things in perspective for the listener. They understand who this person is as a complex human being and not as a, a one-dimensional, this is what I talk about. Right. Um, and that's, that's pretty much the only scripted question that I ask. And I have to say, Casey, one of the best things about that question is that it often leads right into topics that are near and dear to me about authenticity, about um, identity, about relevance and purpose, and what those pivotal moments were in a person's life that led them to where they are right now, the decisions that mm. they made based on experiences of their past. So it, it really is a great question for my particular podcast in the structure or lack of structure that I have. I was imagining just the level of depth you can get to when, I mean, marketing, talking about YouTube advertising is one thing, but to, to get into what is that identity about you that you are pretty sure is a thing that no one else really either knows or recognizes. That's, that's some pretty heavy stuff, but that would make for such a great conversation. Well, sometimes it ends up being really funny. Like I interviewed my sister really? once on my podcast. She's five years nice. younger than I am. And, and we always talk about how I, I practically raised her. There are all kinds of funny stories around that. But I asked her that question and she said, you know what? I used to say that I hated the color pink as a kid. I told everybody I hated the color pink, but I always loved the color pink. I only said that because you hated the color pink. <laughs> and I wanted to be just like oh, my yeah. big sister. I wanted to impress my big sister. She said, but really, most people think that I really hated pink as a kid, but I never did. I never really. <laughs> it was, so it was lighthearted and silly, but it led right into questions about identity. It led right into what do we tell people that we like or don't like just because of some sort of a social pressure from people around us. It ended up being a yeah. great conversation, even though it was a very lighthearted answer. And no doubt your follow-up started bringing it to those deeper level concepts. And then your sister went with you on that adventure. Yes. Have you ever had guests just not want to go there? Oh, yes, absolutely. And as I mentioned before, 
I'm much better now at recognizing that, at, at seeing, especially if we're on Zoom, I can see the the expressions yeah. change, their body language changes, and I can say, okay, let's just take a second and regroup because it seems like we're going yeah. down a path that you're not that interested in going down. So here's what I'm going to say next. Does that sound like a good moving forward point? And they'll say yes or no. Wow. You are so kind. I, well, that's one of the big <laughs> takeaways I have here is just how can I be more kind? And, and I, you know, I think with that, you get even richer content too. So um, amazing. Amazing. I have a lot of things to mull on over here. <laughs> Where can people reach out? They want to, you know, and if they, by the way, talk about Strength Finder real quick before we let everyone go, because if you don't know about this, I think it's, very important. But I, I love to start with the story of why I use this tool, because okay. I always hated assessments. I took them all through college and in the workplace. I spent 20 years in the public sector, going from federal agencies to state agencies to a local agency. And all those stupid assessments that I would take and I'd read them and I'd be like, OK, yep, that's right. And Sure, they were accurate, but I couldn't understand the practical application. And one time it was even bad. Like I understood where I was getting in my own way, but the way it was presented just made me feel bad about myself. And then we, and then it was like nothing happened. You know, we did like a three hour workshop and then never followed up again about what we had learned. So there was no, there was the short term takeaway. But like, for instance, my boss, who was not very nice to me, didn't have any long-term changes to her behavior toward me, despite what mm. she now knew could be helpful in terms of communicating with me. So I really didn't like them. But my friend Tom Dietzler gave me the gift of the StrengthsFinder assessment, the top five, and the book. And because it was from him, and I trust him, I love him, I believe in his kindness and insightfulness. So I took the assessment, same thing. I'm like, yep, pretty accurate. Now what? Like, what do I do with this? But because it yeah. was from him, I actually read the book. And what really stood out to me, it was clearly practical application. What really stood out to me was the way that this information is presented. So yes, you can be pretty accurate. If Google can predict your behavior, so can Gallup, DISC, Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, whatever. The difference was that StrengthsFinder said, this is your magic. This is what you are so instinctively, intuitively good at. And here are yeah. some of the ways you might be getting in your own way. Here are your blind spots. And here are ways that you can bring other people and resources into your life to make a stronger team. You don't yeah. have to do it all. You don't have to be good at everything. But when you're really good at something and you bring in other people who are really good at other things, you, the, that whole, the rising tide lifts all ships, right? So the way it was presented changed it for me. So I don't Isn't know if that... Isn't always the case, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. No. Well, and so you asked me, StrengthsFinder, as, as I said, it was presented beautifully. And I mm -hmm. knew I just needed another credential to get my foot in the door to get back into those um, public sector agencies 
where people hate their jobs, even though they're really important jobs. I wanted to get back in there and improve those workplaces. I, I yeah. wanted people to like their jobs again because what they were doing was meaningful, especially at the local level, direct services. Right. And so I decided, well, I'll go get this credential, whatever. At least I'll have something beside the MBA to get my foot in the door. And the training was extraordinary. It was a full week of intensive training. Plus I had to, yeah, it was, it was and it was very expensive. Um, but what I loved about it was how rigorous it was. And then they required a certain number of hours of practice coaching. And then you had to take a test and you have to take a test every two years to keep certified. And I thought, that's what I want. I want rigor. I want to know that other yeah. coaches out there with this certification have worked hard to get it and, and keep it. And um, wow. so that's, that's why I use this tool. Now I can look at almost any of those assessments and associate them with certain behaviors and predict certain behaviors, mm. all because of my understanding of the StrengthsFinder ones. And that is what we're going to geek out uh, about right after the podcast is done. So <laughs> yes, we get, we, the, con the conversation will continue. Uh, where can people reach out and contact you? They want to talk more about podcasting. Uh, give a shout out to your podcast as well. What are good places to go? Well, the fastest place to find all the links is going to elkinsconsulting.com. That's my website. You can find out about my keynote topics. I love talking about storytelling for advocacy and sales, storytelling as a leader. I love to do full workshops. Um, and you can find out about my StrengthsFinder coaching on that page as well. You can also go to purchase the job interview storytelling course, which is pretty inexpensive and includes uh, a storytelling practice session, either with me alone nice. or in a small group, which if you're interviewing, whether it's for a job or podcasting because you're about to publish a book, that kind of storytelling is going to be critical to your success. And my podcast is everywhere that you can find podcasts. It's called Your Stories Don't Define You how you tell them will. Love it. Love it. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on here. Cooling me up, sharing things you're passionate about, sharing the things you, I can tell you've spent real time thinking about in real time practicing on all multiple hundred of those podcasts that you've done so far. I really thank appreciate you. it. I, I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you, Casey. And just so you know, I'm not a big fan of word of the year, but this year I did one and the word is practice. So you just hit the nail on the head. Practice. And you have practiced before and you continue to practice with your podcast. Everyone should definitely go check it out. I'm fascinated. I can't wait to hear stories and, and just hear people go there in those places and, and think more about what defines me. Uh, and for those listening, if you learn something and it's a foregone conclusion that you did, because I literally have two pages of notes over here, front and back, then share this with someone else. Be a thought leader to nine people, 4,000, 30,000, whatever. But get good information into other people's hands. That's, that's how I make this world go around. So, Sarah, thank you again for being on here. Thanks, Casey. All right, everyone. This has been one of those powerful episodes of Creating the Greatest Show. We'll catch you all next time. 
And next time doesn't have to be next week. Life's too short and we have way too much to talk about. Find show notes full of takeaways, lessons, and links at creatingthegreatestshow.com. For more information on launching your own podcast or working with us to produce your existing show, come on down to the big tent at ringmaster.com. Until then, friends, whatever you do, do it with all your might. Work at it, if necessary, early and late, in season and out of season, not leaving a stone unturned and never deferring for a single hour. That which can be done just as well now. P.T. Barnum.